Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. The definition of the technology scene is expanding. Historically, we saw the founders and funders of tech on one side and startups in bio, chemistry, and other hard sciences on the other. We wanted to explore this collision between deep tech and the more traditional functions of computation and software. So today we're speaking with Andrew Busey, co-founder and co-CEO of FormBio and chief product officer and co-founder of Colossal Biosciences. Form and Colossal sit right at this technological convergence and are helping to power Austin's role in that future. In the past 25 years of his career, Andrew has pioneered some of the internet's most important technologies, including work on Mosaic, the first web browser, now part of the Microsoft Internet Explorer, creating iChat, the first web-based chat system, and one of the first instant messaging applications, invented chat with a customer service rep, and more. Additionally, Andrew is an active angel investor in companies such as Aceable, CrateJoy, Flash, Zen Business, and Waterloo Water. Fun fact, he's the author of Accidental Gods, a novel about a group of scientists who simulate a universe where life develops, and Secrets of the Mud Wizards, the first book about developing multiplayer games. Andrew, welcome to the Austin X podcast. Thanks for having me. So normally we don't do deep dives on our guest bio, but this is going to be, I think, a little bit different of an episode. When we kind of look back at your bio, you've been through quite a few pivotal moments in kind of the history of tech, whether that be at Mosaic, Zynga, Conversable, Hypergiant, and now Colossal Biosciences and Form. Can you kind of walk us through your bio in these different kind of eras of tech from like the early internet to gaming to AI and now kind of in bio? But I kind of want you to frame it from the perspective of those pivot moments and what you saw and why you know that was kind of the moment to move and what was going on. Yeah, so... First, I'm going to disclaim that, you know, I'm not a genius in the sense that I specifically moved into all those because I thought that I was like jumping into the future. It's more, I think, two things. I Timing wise, I'm, it's been an interesting. I did computer science as my undergrad, but I, I didn't actually. So I started in computer science and electrical engineering. I didn't really love electrical engineering and the hardcore stuff. So I was like, I sort of envisioned this idea of what a product manager is before there were really product managers. So that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to be like the person who like figured out what to make. And, you know, I didn't really know how to do that when I graduated from college. So I had a hard time finding a job, you know, so at Microsoft, these people were called program managers. And I, the only job I applied for out of college was program manager for TCP IP, which probably no one even knows what TCP IP is anymore, but it's like the, you know, the protocol that runs the internet. And I didn't, get that job mostly because I probably didn't really know how I was supposed to even apply for that. And they probably didn't hire, you know, straight out of college kids anyway. So I, at the time I was spending a lot of time developing multi-user dungeons, which were, you know, the first kind of multiplayer games. And that was my passion. And so I, I ended up moving to um, Illinois for a girl I met on a game. I won't spend much time on that, but like I spent a little bit of time trying to start a company commercializing these games, but I didn't really know anything about raising money or VC or anything. So I ended up like just cold calling everyone, you know, Champagne, Urbana, Phonebook, that was a software company. And I mean, there were only like five. Not a hard cold calling then, right? 
Yeah. You know, it's like looking in the actual, an actual phone book. Cause there was no web because <laughs> it was just sort of starting. Right. I mean, I knew a lot about the internet cause I, you know, I'd spent time developing muds and things like that, but you know, the web was new. So I ended up, one of the companies was Spyglass, which had a bunch of licenses from the NCSA, the National Center for Supercomputing Applications at University of Illinois, that was, you know, doing visualization tools and stuff like that. And they're like, well, we're thinking about licensing this thing from, you know, I was actually pitching them to invest in my idea. And they're like, well, we don't invest in anything, but, you know, we're thinking about doing this, you know, buying the commercial rights from the university for this mosaic thing. And I was like, cool. And they're like, you want to come work on that? I was like, sure. <laughs> Because I kind of needed a job. My only other interview there, I interviewed for a job as in the IT department of Solo Cups. Apparently came off a little too strong in that conversation. But Spyglass was more of a startup. Worked out. I ended up working, you know, as the product manager for Mosaic. Got recruited by Netscape. I probably could have moved to the Bay and been a really early employee in, at, at Netscape. But I, I'd only been to Silicon Valley once and it was terrible. <laughs> I had no desire to go back. Not that Champagne was a particularly you know, beautiful place, but it was interesting. I got to, you know, I got to meet a lot of really interesting people. You know, so I went to a bunch of the early internet engineering task force meetings and actually ended up meeting a lot of the, like the program manager for TCPIP at Microsoft helped kind of initiate the conversations that led to Microsoft licensing Mosaic for Internet Explorer and a bunch of other kind of early stuff like um, Rob Leisure from Real Networks called me. I was like the only one in the office one after one early evening and answer the phone and this guy's like, Hey, can I get the source code? I was like, what? <laughs> and then he's like, well, I used to be this product guy at Microsoft and I'm doing this thing. And so ended up, you know, getting him a, a source deal so he could develop real at the time was real audio and kind of like a lot of really interesting stuff. So then they moved to Chicago and I decided I didn't really want to go there. So I, I ended up choosing Austin over Silicon Valley. And so I moved to Austin at the end of 1994. Little, little bit different than today, right? But still rapidly changing, I assume. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know. Like, yeah, it was weird. Like, it was definitely different back then. And for sure, it was all enterprise software on the tech side. I didn't really know what I was doing, but this guy that I met through Spyglass was like, I'm starting this company to go build like a publishing business for the web. And I was like, cool. Turned out he was a little bit of a, a little bit shady. So me and the other guy that he had hired in Austin, like eventually just gave up on the whole thing because we weren't sure if we were ever going to get paid or reimbursed for things. And so we decided we would start a consulting business. And so we ended up starting a little company. I bought a Spyglass license. I bought a TCP IP stack license. So back then to connect a Windows machine to the internet, you had to have a TCP IP stack, which was remarkably difficult to get. You had to go to companies like Walker, uh, right? Uh, WRQ is the name of this one company, and they're like five hundred dollars for a, their TCP/IP suite and stuff like that. It was crazy. And so we assembled basically the the internet disk, like the AOL disk at the time. And so we partnered with Earthlink and Concentric Networks, and uh, there were two or three other pretty big internet providers. So we ended up basically building the the disks for those guys to do the installs. And I was like, hey, the big thing missing in this is chat. And my partner was like, eh, whatever. And I was like, I'm going to go build this chat thing. Do you care? He's like, no. So I went and wrote a business plan to build this chat thing. I didn't really, again, know what I was doing, but I ended up somehow getting a term sheet from Austin Ventures. And then I got a term sheet from another VC firm here that had come in from Silicon Valley. I went to that partner meeting 
for the final pitch after I have the term sheet from AV. I'm like, I don't care anymore because I'm done. So I show up in like shorts and a t-shirt and I shave, but they're like, what, what's going on? And I was like, ah, you know, got a term sheet. I'm, I'm like, ah, I feel bad that you guys came all the way out here for the full partner meeting, but you know, probably going to sign this other one. They're like, well, what would it take to do the deal? And so I like, you know, doubled the price and uh, which was like the biggest number I could imagine in my head at a time. Cause you know, it was like, 21 and they're like okay and i was like uh <laughs> so i ended up signing term sheet with them learn the power of fomo real early yeah it was interesting i mean because at the at the time vignette which was basically ross and neil were incubating the same office with these guys so i was kind of hanging out there too some and i think that made av mad so then they gave like the vignette guys like a spectacular term sheet so that like it kind of spurred a lot of weird activities on which that became iChat. And, you know, the idea was how do we create the chat component of the internet? And so build the first Netscape plugin for chat, build the first HTML based chat systems, you know, build like a ton of stuff built. You know, I walked up to Jerry Yang at an internet conference and said, Hey, you guys should add chat to Yahoo. And he was like, okay. So <laughs> we ended up doing a deal with Yahoo to build Yahoo chat, did a lot of interesting stuff. And then we were like, Oh, we should do, you know, our, as we raise more money that they're like, you need enterprise products. It's like, what if we had child, the customer service rep, that seemed like a cool idea. So we built that, you know, kind of invented that idea, created the first web-based, you know, chat with customer service rep software. And then it was, you know, a sales business at that point. And I was like, I'm going to go figure something else out. So I was like, Oh, e-commerce is going to be the next big thing. Like "Hmm, what's going to be a big e-commerce category. So I just did like a spreadsheet of like, Oh, what should I do? Turns out my dad was in the furniture industry for his entire life. And I was like, I'm going to do furniture on the, on the internet. So I wrote like a 15 page slide deck, pitched a couple of people and benchmark, benchmark invested in it. And then we were off the races. You know, we built this company to about 60, about a $60 million revenue run rate. And in January of 2000, Morgan Stanley was like, don't raise any more money. We're in a public. I was like, okay. And ended up not raising any more money. And then in, you know, April, May of 2000, the world ended for everybody in B2C and .com, including us, because we had not raised more money. So if we'd raised more money, probably that company would still exist. And, you know, that would have been a different outcome. So kind of learned the hard way that when you're going flying at Mach 2 and a brick wall is in front of you, you're in big trouble. If you can't, <laughs> if you don't have the ability to go turn anywhere. So learned a lot from that, you know, built a, a couple of smaller software companies over the next couple of years including, you know, that most of which got bought for, you know, for reasonable outcomes, but didn't really raise a lot of money for them. So it's okay for me. Then started a company called Pluck with Dave Panos, who he, I don't know if you met him or not, but he's another kind of old school software guy in Austin that was funded by AV and, and Mayfield um, and got bought by Domain Media, like basically building social media as an enterprise software technology before there was really social media. <laughs> So we built a lot of social media-ish tech and RSS stuff, which really was comments and, you know, social interaction on websites. So we had a bunch of, you know, customers like the NFL and Reuters and stuff like that. So so it seems a lot of, obviously, these kind of pieces and parts, right? Like, as you said, like you bringing in chat, obviously, from Mosaic, bringing the chat and then the the comments section. And then you said kind of bring on the social before. And then obviously, when we're getting into, you know, now Challenge Games and Zynga, obviously, built on top of at least when I was kind of seeing that space as a consumer on top of Facebook, it, it's kind of an interesting kind of, not the underlying technology, but kind of the, the next stage above it, right? Is that, is that a good descriptor of where you've built the pieces? The way I think of it is, 
I make Reese's peanut butter cups. And so like software is either the chocolate or the peanut butter. And then I'm finding some other thing to combine with it to make something that tastes great and is like novel. Right. So like I'm a product guy. So like, I mean, I, you know, I have a CS degree and I like, you know, can nominally program probably wouldn't want me working on a commercial software product, but I try to think about how software can change how things are done in some form. Right. And that can be, you know, taking the latest advancements in software and doing something slightly different with them, or it could be like finding something that people are maybe going to want to do and combining that with software or software enablement. So really like that idea of a Reese's peanut butter cup is like, especially true now where it's like, you know, as a technology generalist, like I can sort of figure out how to frame up anything in software and technology. And then it's a matter of trying to figure out how it maps to a specific industry or use case. And and a lot of times, like I'm, I, I joke that, you know, one of my superpowers is I can ask a lot of really annoying questions to people. So I just keep asking people questions until I get the answers that like I really need to to understand it you know like at the beginning of colossal like i kind of suspected this was true but i learned like a little trick which is if you have enough money which isn't a ton right like thousands you can literally learn anything ultra fast you just go find the best person at that thing that's in proximity to you and hire them so in the in the case of i was like i gotta learn this biology stuff real fast so i found a professor at ut she's the co-author of a genomics book harvard phd I was like, hey, can I just pay you like a couple hundred bucks an hour to like teach me this stuff as fast as possible? Like, I don't want any of the like the bullshit stuff that you would teach in a class to make it last a semester. I want the fastest, most condensed thing possible. So I want you to like write me the bullet point summary of everything that you think is important in genomics. And then I'm going to reply to your bullet point list asking for details on the things that I don't understand. (laughs) And so, so in like, you know, a couple of exchanges, I'm like, okay, I think I got this. And I mean, that probably isn't the right way for everyone to learn things, but it, it, that that's like the most efficient way for me to learn. And, and so the ability to do that is like ultra powerful, right? And then like that, that, that gave me enough of an understanding of the core biology that then I could really annoy the people that do stuff. I want to run with this, the Reese's peanut butter cup for a minute. Is there been a change in kind of the, the, the hard sciences, biospace, quantum, even in like the, the AI because we're seeing this big trend, right? The, 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 yourself being a great example, but these kind of classic tech and software entrepreneurs moving into the kind of the deep and hard tech space and kind of applying almost this kind of, meta, I, I think that's a good metaphor, being able to say, well, we're applying software to this, we're applying these kind of different, more classic product management, product development types of tools. What's driving this trend? Is it there's, there's a moment that's happened in the sciences that makes this available. Is it just everyone's focused on it now? What is, what is it that we're seeing that's, that's having this happen? I think there's two somewhat unrelated things happening. So I think one thing is, I think AI is an actual change in technology. Like I spent, like, I, I think three or four years ago, I, t- I took Andrew Ng's Coursera class on ML where you, you know, did ML stuff in MATLAB. Because <laughs> I was like, this is very different. Like literally everything before that is like, you have a piece of glass, whether that piece of glass is Chrome or Windows or Mac OS or iOS or Android or whatever, where you're like displaying something. And you basically have a backend, of, which is a database and some logic. <laughs> like literally that is all software. <laughs> and that hasn't really changed that much in you know the 30-ish years I've been doing this. And I was like, 
AI seems different. And so I, I spent a fair amount of time trying to learn and understand the general concept of neural networks and that sort of how that kind of worked and why it was different. I did come to believe that, you know, data, the, the intersection of, of data and sort of machine learning is different than the way things have been done before. And it is a pretty significant change in technology that will open up a myriad of things that people, I think, have no idea, um, you know, what that looks like exactly, including me. Like, I certainly didn't predict, you know. Soon we'll be able to use AI to talk to the cats, to know what they want, talk to the babies, to know what they want. It's a- yeah, I actually kind of, I kind of want to see, I kind of want the LLM for cats. I mean, I don't think anyone saw how big of a leap this LLM kind of technology would be. That, that's been like a massive kind of step forward. I think it's still, you know, we're still kind of digesting what that means across the board, probably will be for a long time. But I, I think we're about to see a, you know, a massive kind of exponential curve in technology that is going to radically change things. And I write science fiction in my spare time. I don't know if we talked about that before, but uh, so I like to think about, like, I'm really interested in the philosophy of AI and, and sent in artificial sentience. And I've been thinking about those things for a really long time, more as a, you know, on a philosophy level, not on a, you know, implementation level, but, but I, I think it's, it's really fascinating. And we're going to see a lot of crazy things happen. And I think, you know, that's part of why when we started Colossal, you know, Ben, kind of put that idea together and, you know, work on the relationship with George at Harvard. But, you know, part of the original conversation, because it wasn't clear at the very beginning, probably story is going to get evolved over time. But, um, you know, at the beginning, it was not entirely clear how, you know, the mammoth was going to make money and be viably, a viable commercial path. I think that's pretty clear to us now. But, in a lot of startups, I think that that's the case where you're like, well, we have this idea and we're going to build this thing, but we don't know exactly how it's going to work. But part of the sort of pitch that we developed at the beginning was, well, the mammoth is the, the North Star. And part of the strategy was we're going to have to come up with a bunch of new things to get to the mammoth for sure, right? And so when we figure out those things, we can spin them off into new commercial entities or divisions or whatever, and that will you know, create value for Colossal. And so you know, as a software guy, I'm like, or, you know, it's kind of like to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I was like, well, clearly there's a software problem in here. And so I spent, you know, a lot of 2021 talking to people and I talked to a, you know, a lot of PhDs in molecular biology and related fields and MDs and everything else. I kind of developed this pitch that became form IO as we had those conversations. And I was like, I kept like expecting to hear, oh yeah, this is how we do that. It never happened, right? So I was like, "Holy crap! <laughs> how can how can it be this bad?" And turns out it is that bad. Well, and that's kind of where I want to segue into talking specifically about Form Bio. Yes, you're a spin out of Colossal, but tell me the specific issue that Form Bio is looking to solve. So Form is a platform company, and the one of several things I've learned in the, my 25 years or whatever of being an entrepreneur is if you're a platform company you should probably figure out at least one or two like highly valuable use cases as early as humanly possible so that you can get people to actually buy the platform. I mean, the good news is Colossal uses the platform. So we have, you know, one automatic customer out of the gate, but the challenge is if you talk to a bunch of biotech companies or in the cell and gene therapy space, in many of these different categories, their data is what I would call badly managed. To the point where people will send hard drives of data, 
They don't know where it came from. They don't know the settings on the sequencer when they sequenced it. I'm like, you're making a drug that's going to go on a human being. How do you not know this stuff? And why does the FDA not demand that you provide it? I was like, oh my God. And so what we learned is that one, this data is badly managed, which so a lot of forms core platform functionality is get the data on form as fast as possible and build a data provenance record of the data, right? So whether it came straight from a sequencer or from another, another source, once it's on our platform, we can track it and manage it and understand like what you've done to it, right? Because basically most of the digital side of biology and you know, bioinformatics is transformation and analysis of data. So like find this gene, see if it's a mutation, you know, like what small pieces are different in this mutation? What does it mean, right? And so those types of questions, you better have good data. And if you ask a thousand questions and then somebody leaves your company and somebody else takes over, guess what? They're going to have to start over again in the current way things work because the data, and they're definitely not going to know how you got there. And, you know, a lot of stuff is written in like paper lab notebooks of what people were thinking and doing. And like, it's just, it's just surprisingly bad. And, and so building that just purely in, you know, version one of, you know, where we are right now is, is really about get the data on the form and make it as easy as possible to do the analysis and transformation work that you need to do with that data, right? Whether that's to get to a therapeutic or a mammoth, we're agnostic, right? So that's the high level platform overview. And then I can go into some of the details of how we specifically plan to sell it. Yeah. But realistically, what you're describing is a set of tools that are sitting on top of, you know, bios, deep tech. Well, so, so the problem with deep tech, it's like if you build an oil well in the middle of nowhere without looking to see where the oil is first, that's a pretty dumb choice, which is kind of what's happening. They're like, Oh, Hey, we're out here looking out. It's like, they're, they're like totally detached. So, the problem with, you know, with deep tech really is if you don't understand how things work and you can't create a magical system that can figure that out by itself, you better have data. And if you don't have any data, you're screwed. So, and if you have data that you don't understand or you didn't correctly, you know, preserve or track or whatever, you are also severely crippling yourself, if not killing your ability to use that data. And at the end of the day, when we talk about specific use cases in CGT, a lot of times you need to do something to that data to get to clinical trials, for example, right? So sometimes you have a research partner, like a university that did a bunch of work and they just drop basically a vector on your, you know, they, they send you this vector and you're like, this is, this cures cancer in mice. You're like, you bought it for whatever from the university. Now, now go turn it into a therapeutic. They're like, so a lot of times they'll be like, okay, well, the last time we did this, we used an AAV to wrap it. So yeah, we'll do that now. And then we're going to send it to a CDMO to manufacture it. And we're going to take whatever the result of that manufacturing run is. And then we're going to put it in clinical trials. And then in however many years after the clinical, you know, through clinical, clinical trials, you're like, okay, now we have a therapeutic. We're going to take it to market. So let's just say the therapeutic has a $500 million total addressable market. So you probably have a patent. By this point, you probably wasted half of it, right? So you have like nine years to extract that TAM. And, you know, the TAM, like, it's never going to totally go away, right? Because there's going to always be probably people coming that need it. But, you know, you're going to sell this thing for $2 million a dose. 
let's say, because it's a rare disease therapeutic. And when you did your test run back, you know, four years before you did your clinical trials, you didn't do anything. You just took the thing from the academic institution. Maybe you did like a really simple code on optimization. Then you sent it for manufacturing and you spent $10 million for this test run and you got, you know, 10 doses out of it. So it cost you a million dollars a dose. So you're basically making a million dollars a sale, which, you know, sounds crazy, but like you spent a lot of money on R&D and everything else and it's curing a disease. So, you know, that not, I'm not the pricing guy, but what if someone could take the thing you got from your academic partner, do some light optimization that doesn't change the, you know, the functional outcome, but reorders the structure just a little bit in a way that makes it much easier to manufacture. And so instead of for $10 million, instead of getting 10 doses, you got 12 doses, which, you know, pretty reasonable and achievable based on our early work. Now, when you get through clinical trials and you go to market, now your COGS are 20, effectively 20% less. So you're basically generated $100 million of free cash flow, which you can either use to make more drugs or, you know, pocket or whatever. But once you start that clinical trials process, good luck changing your formulation at all, right? Because you're locked in with the clinical trial results, right? So you're sort of trapped. So if you could spend, you know, half a, half a million to a million dollars doing that, you know, optimization before you started clinical trials, pretty easy choice. Also, it's possible that you spend that $10 million to do that test and it fails because you get two doses, which means your cost per dose is too high and the drug's never going to go to market. We can also predict that, which will save you $10 million and then help you try to optimize it in a way that gets you to a point that it can be sold at a, you know, a, a viable price point. So those are the types of things where we take the data that you have, the data that other people have, public data. And we build both simulation and optimization components to solve actual problems that are worth lots of money in this category. And so to your previous statement of like, why does now matter more than ever? In this particular case, it has nothing to do with tech. It has to do with biotech, which has the word tech in it, but really not tech in the way that we're talking in general. So biotech has not had a great year for 18 months. And so now these biotech companies that used to just have loads of money and could afford to, you know, eat all these types of mistakes are suddenly, oh, we better not mess this up. <laughs> we better maximize the ROI of everything we make. So timing wise, you know, that's turned out to be a pretty, you know, pretty good for us. Cause now while they weren't previously not caring that much about manufacturing efficiency, for example, now they do care or they're certainly more willing to care. And, you know, it's just a matter of, of education, I think at this point. So, but, but that, and that's just one function of the platform. And, you know, they could do a lot of additional bioinformatics work outside of those specific use cases, but there's a lot of, a lot of fun and cool things that people can do. And I think we'll see universities using form over time. That's obviously more of a platform use case where it's like less of a big revenue generator probably looks a little bit more like maybe a Mathematica or something like that, where it's a little bit more of like some general kind of bioinformatics and biology use cases for students. And we, you know, we try to make that kind of some special EDU opportunities, but you, it's much harder to build a platform if you went that path versus finding a really, really value, valuable vertical slice that you can deliver on your platform. And then, you know, 
guess what? All those vertical slices are data transformations and you want to know where the data came from and where the data goes. And eventually you're going to have to produce and share that with the FDA and other people. And we'll help you do that too. It's interesting because I spent some time on, on the UT campus last week and a lot of what's going on there in the CS department seems to be exactly what you described as for FormBio. You're looking at optimization and enhancement of underlying technologies. And we saw it when we talked to Jasper AI, when they talked about doing optimization around brand voice. Some of the folks I talked to last week were talking about optimization in other areas, but they were looking at how to make AI more explainable as a way of getting it more used. And it, it leads to a question because when we look at Austin, and we look at the skill sets of the folks here in, in this metro area, I guess the question comes down to which one is Austin? Are we the folks developing the underlying technologies or do we have the skill set that enables us to make those technologies more useful? Well, I don't know. What I'm about to say might be controversial and Adam might, you know, or someone might throw tomatoes at me, but... It won't be us. It's Okay. You know, I love Austin. I've been here for a long time. You know, I helped start Capital Factory. I made a zillion angel investments here, built a lot of stuff here. Form is hybrid, mostly remote. And, you know, we're kind of agnostic about where people are. We do have a lot of people in Austin, mostly because that those are, you know, in-network hires are just easier. But, look, I think UT is a top-tier AI school. I think, like, there's a ton of really interesting intersectional work between biology and AI happening at UT. And I think that's really exciting. I think that that will be very valuable in the future. And I think that we, I don't think we know the answer to that question. And I, I'm not sure that like, I don't think there'll be a city that dominates AI. I mean, I think that, you know, San Francisco will say that they are maybe London because of DeepMind will say that they are, but like in Seattle, I'm sure we'll have something to say about it. I don't know that we have a dominant anchor in Austin for that. But I think in the end, most of the things that are the core of the, this wave of AI will be distributed in a way that in generation one, which we're in, it will feel like the big companies control and dominate it. I think in the second generation, it will not be the case because I think one, there'll be very vertical hyper-intelligences that are like, you know, like things that do special stuff. And I think that's where the business opportunities really are going to exist for most companies. I think that, you know, raw generative AI and AGI are, I mean, if somebody gets, if, if we get an AGI, like that's going to change everything and probably not going to really matter what city you're in because it's pretty, probably going to quickly alter everything in a way that we just don't understand. But even stepping back though, for, for a moment, because I think there's not, it's not necessarily bad or good, right? It's, it's more of a, a question looking and I, I'm pushing off the, the, the AGI moment for a minute because whether that is, is, it's your point, like if that happens and what that looks like and if there's one or a thousand or whatever, that it's a pretty big game changer. But it's an interesting question from, because even a non, the non-AI component, right? When we think about quantum, when we think about some of these other ones as well, it has been this kind of optimization layer on top that does seem to be Austin's, what I'm thinking at least on the, the, the deep tech intersection, 
like as you said, no one's here building LLMs, building kind of the you know like Jasper, like the piece that goes. I mean, there are people building LLMs here, but uh, okay, at least when I think of the unicorns, right? Like it's it's the things that go on top, right? Like it's it's these it's these convergence points. We're like we're going to take this piece of tech, we're going to take that piece of tech. You know, your your Reese's peanut butter again. We're going to take these pieces together and kind of merge it, and then out of that we'll create this new vertical. And and that's not necessarily a bad piece. I mean, I think some of it also like we think about like when we think about quantum. You know, yeah, like the only people who can build like quantum computers and the dollars and capital to go into that, it's a very small group, not even like a metro wise, it's a very small number of like organizations that can build that, you know. Some would argue that that number is zero. Mm. That's a whole, yeah. So it's, it's, just, it's an interesting question is in the, one, of the, one that we kind of continue to try to explore and just understand from when we're trying to pull out what's the talent that we need here you know, and are we producing enough? I think it's interesting back to the AI point, you know, you saw like that UT recently launched um, a master's in AI. And then like, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, like they, they're teaming with Amazon to establish a new science hub. So we think about like, are we producing enough talent in this, you know, to really lead in this kind of intersection vertical? Well, I mean, that master's in AI is is online, right? So you don't actually have to be... Which is a whole other interesting, you know, piece to it, right? ET, right. So, I mean, I think we are producing a lot of talent here. And there's a lot of, like, I don't know if you know, do you know Adam Clivens? He's actually, I think, the professor that put that together. And uh, he actually spends a lot, he's spending a lot of time on it, on the AI side of biology as well. So, you know, he's like an MIT PhD. He's been at UT for a decade, maybe. I don't know. There's like another guy that worked with Fairmount and on the advisory board of Forum and Colossal is a professor at UT who just moved here over the last summer who, you know, came from Harvard and previously was at, you know, I think Cambridge. So like UT is doing a great job of recruiting rockstar talent. And I believe they are building a sustainable program that will be impactful for a long time. And so I, I think that that's great for Austin and it's great for talent production because I do think that once, you know, lots of times people don't really leave, but it's still going to be hard to compete against. The biggest challenge right now is just going to be like Google and Microsoft and Amazon and Facebook just paying like extraordinary salaries to people in this category and warehousing talent. Now, I think the good news is the current situation is probably reducing their appetite to warehouse people at those price points that aren't working on critical things for an indefinite period of time. I think that's actually probably the more likely thing that will change the general distribution of talent than cities. I don't know whether we will move fully back to office work anytime in the future. I think people will try. I think in some ways, you know, there'll probably be technology that makes it easier to manage remote work as, you know, now that we're kind of a few years into a much higher level of remote work. And that will probably change people's acceptance level for that type of stuff, right? Like, I don't feel like I need to go to an office. Like it doesn't, I guess I'm not an extrovert. So I don't like, I'm not one of those people that's like, I want to be in an office. And that's how do I know anyone's working if I can't see them working? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that if you're looking at somebody typing on a keyboard, you don't know whether they're working or not just because they're in an office. So I, you know, I kind of have mixed feelings on that. I, I love cities. I live in downtown Austin. So I, like, I love that I can walk to a lot of places and that the places I can walk to are getting better every, you know, right now, every week, which is fabulous. And I think we'll see a lot more people that want to move to downtown Austin. I think, you know, it's a very competitive city. Obviously there's some real estate price point issues, but, but I think that, that those are the types of things that will matter. The talent will move to wherever it is cool and interesting and not 
terrible, right? So like as long as downtown Austin doesn't become downtown San Francisco, I think we have a pretty, you know, we're in pretty good shape. Now, how we stop that, it's a different political question. But. I think that's a great point to kind of lead always into our final question. So we've got all these kind of remote work trends. We've got all sorts of new and interesting companies building off of AI, building off of biology. You've got UT. We've talked about the talent. So Andrew, what's next, Austin? Well, I think the big thing we're going to see is fabs and Musk related companies evolving here and how that affects the, the mix of things will be very interesting. So I think that's going to be the big next, like they're building the, I guess the new Tesla headquarters downtown. That was what I heard anyway, what it was Google and Facebook. I mean, those offices are right now are heavily balanced or biased or whatever towards like sales and marketing and ads and things like that. But they're slowly building out tech teams. I like I spent a lot of time talking to Facebook in the conversable days and they didn't have any tech in Austin at that point, and now they do. Same with Google. So they're slowly building out technical outposts here. I think that the big question will be, I mean, I actually think the bigger, you know, the thing that will have the biggest impact that we just besides AI related craziness is what happens with remote work, right? If remote work, if it turns out that having people in an office somehow creates a degree of serendipity that we just don't really understand yet. And everyone is like, oh my God, we got to put all a bunch of smart people together to create some critical mass of something. Then I think in that scenario, then that would probably be a win for Austin because I think Austin will be an anchor city for kind of that type of stuff. It's If it's remote, I think that, you know, Austin's probably going to be competing against cities like Nashville and Boston and not so much New York and San Francisco and Seattle. But I think, you know, for people that want to have a, a good quality of life and be around people that are smart. And I think Austin is a great choice. Great. Andrew Busey from Form Bio. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.